Dr. Mac H. Sloan Jr., welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm very honored to be here. This has been, you know, I've been, I waited for months. I'm excited. I'm excited to be with you guys. Thank well, you so much. We are excited to be with you as well. And, and there are just so many different topics that uh, we want to discuss with you. And we've actually been looking forward to interviewing you since uh, we interviewed one of our favorite people um, who was on our podcast in the past and actually served as a guest co-host um, with us. And, uh, you know, she's the one that really, really dug into SOT with us and had shared with us that her life was saved by uh, SOT and uh, and the good work that you did with, with her. So uh, shout out to uh, Kelsey Watkins, uh, our good friend and uh, former co-host and uh, someone who has benefited greatly from the work that you've done. So let's let's begin here with, um, first of all, where you work. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about where you live and and a little bit about your background before you became the uh, the Lyme nerd that you are. So let's let's start yes. first with uh, where you where you're currently working. We are in North Georgia in a city called Cumming. It's just north of Alpharetta. It's between Buford and and Alpharetta, and it's close to the lake. So you know I like water. Um, it's called the Genesis Center. Um, I have social media on Facebook and and TikTok, and then I'm trying to actually combine everything together so I can put it out there a little bit more. My my interest in doing these kind of things is not to make my phone ring more. It's about education information because we are way behind on the updated literature and the things that we have done to change the standard of care of treatment for Lyme and for co-infections. Um, and I, I, I'll, I'll pop up anywhere that I can train other physicians. Um, there's no ego in illness. So I want everybody to know as much as we can about the treatments, testing properly, treating properly, treating in the order of importance, and then knowing when to retest and what to look for. That's um, been a been the journey so far. So you've come to the right place because uh, we actually don't have anything to sell and we're not looking for anybody to ring our phone, although we're happy to take those calls. We get actually um, millions of contacts a month at this point. Uh, but uh, you've come to the right place because we ask you to give it all away for free. So um, you've you've anticipated our goals, and 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 it's cool that you're you're you you have the same spirit that we have. So so let's talk about uh, the Genesis Center and uh, and and what was the vision for uh, building the Genesis Center? Um, my vision is quite unusual because I didn't really set a vision. I just kind of let God lead me and open the doors where. He wanted me to do, and I've always done that. Um, uh, I'm like, for 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 functional medicine, we're pioneers. I've been doing this for a long time. So we've moved beyond functional to integrative functional, and then what now I call quantum medicine, because now we're trying to align mind, body, and spirit, and you know, even redirecting the conversations to close up some of the confusion in patients while we're still doing the best test using the best laboratories that we've ever seen in the Lyme world. All right. So um, give us some of your background. Where did you grow up and uh, what ultimately uh, caused you to believe that God created you to work in the healing arts? Um, well, I, I could go, I could explain that for a long time. Um, I, I grew up as a really sick kid. I was called a tent kid uh, where when my fingers were turned blue, my fingernails were blue. Mom would take me to the hospital and they'd put me in the tent because I couldn't breathe. Um, and, and through that, uh, in my teenage years, I got I had mono at 16, Epstein-Barr. 
And even when I was 30, I was still having fevers with EBV just plaguing my life. So through the functional medicine years, we, we do, we do, we do probably more IVs than anybody in the, in Georgia or maybe in the Southeast. So I really rely on IV therapies to help get things under control. And then um, I guess I grew up with Lyme disease. I'm from deep South Georgia. I would leave on my four wheeler on Friday and not come back on a Sunday. And I'm sure I was covered with ticks every, every weekend. Um, I think that now that I know the order of pathogenicity of what to treat mold and then Lyme that you can't get over EBV and other innate viruses when you have underlying conditions that suppress your immune system. So that's probably where I came to do this. But so in 2014, I had a, have had a, my favorite cousin um, was dying of melanoma cancer. And I sought out to find the best research genetic cancer center I could find because I really sought out to save him. Um, unfortunately, I did find the lab, but I couldn't save him. And I started doing antisense therapies, which is the same as SOT for cancer patients. And I became a leader in the country for that and doing using their immunotherapies for cancer. So I come out of the cancer field, the, the, the autoimmune field, um, infectious disease field, just treating the sickest of the sick of the country. And then, um, and then RGCC, who I, I use for cancer SOTs, they eventually, I got a little email that said, oh, by the way, since we can turn off the translocation replication sequence of cancer cells, we crossed that over into the Lyme world. Um, we have, you know, they continue to develop more and more and more and more SOTs for different bugs. And um, I had treated over 100 patients with SOT before it even really caught on. And I was seeing how incredible the response was in every field. Like think about a bug that causes 80, 70 to 90% of all autoimmune diseases. It causes, um, it, it can be found in cancer cells and Bartonella can be found in cancer cells. So when I started using it for, for Lyme disease, it was just incredible. So. All right. So let's, yeah. let's hit the pause button there, Dr. Song, because. Um, we want to stay a little bit more in your background um, because okay. we're excited to talk with you about um, about um, broad spectrum healing versus targeted healing. We're yeah. excited to talk to you about how you define Lyme disease, but you're getting a little ahead of us there. So let's stay focused on 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 Mark Sloan uh, rather than um, rather than uh, the 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 professional uh, character that you that you that you uh, and the and the professional purposes you fulfill sure. now. So, Ray, did you just call him Mark there. Sloan? I have to interrupt. It's it's always, you uh, called him Mark Sloan. Did I say Mark instead of Mac? All right. So come on. Sorry, sorry, sorry Doctor Sloan. I've already butchered. It's, nor your name. it's normal when you write the C. Sometimes it looks like That's an fine. And when you're old and you can't see like I can't. So uh, so let's. Let's come back to, let's come back to, so you're the sickly kid, right? You, you're, so, you're, so I, I, I basically, I get best. I, as far as I can tell, I grew up with Lyme. Um, I did not know how to test Lyme properly until they said we can do SOT for it. And um, I found that I had CDC IgM criteria Lyme disease, which is a big deal when, when using laboratory tests to actually really find what, what we're doing. I, I had no idea what my symptoms were because I've had it for so long. So it, it was the strangest thing to me that I ordered my SOT, got it in me, and I 
three days later, I woke up like the world was brighter. My brain was kicking. I was shocked at how long I had been in the dark. And you come, you become used to that new standard of, you know, how you feel because you just don't know anymore how you're supposed to feel because you've been sick for so long. Okay. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to pause there again. Cause I want, I want to go through your background a little bit more. So you're, yeah. you're a sickly kid. You're, you, you were calling yourself the tent T E N T kid because you were always in the medical tent and you're being treated by the, by the traditional medical community. Uh, but you never receive a diagnosis, right? I mean, you just, you just no. sort of going from, you're going from illness to illness, doctor to doctor, medical center to medical center, and you're not getting any better. And you mm-hmm. sort of have this expectation that you're just going to be, you're going to have a base level of of illness. Yeah, that's true. True for everybody once they become used to that new standard. So the journey continues, and actually, I'm still in it. So I've I've gone through a I've gone through most of everything my patients have gone through. I've I sat in my office working on really sick patients at the same time that I was really sick too. And um, so tell me, but tell me. Dr. Sohn, why you were, why you believe you were failed by the traditional medical system prior to the time that you got into uh, treating um, holistically, alternatively. I mean, we're going to, we're going to get through all these, uh, all of these different terms. Um, but why were you, why were you being failed? Why weren't you diagnosed? Or why weren't you getting treatment that was allowing you to get better? So, I mean, what we always focus on now and what my journey is, is to test properly with the proper laboratories and then to find our targets in order of the pathogenicity. I feel like Lyme disease and mold were, at this point, Lyme disease and mold were my two bad guys that kept me down. I couldn't get over EBV. I couldn't get over some of the simple stuff. And I was but just- you weren't awful. even diagnosed with there. I mean, you, 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 none of the doctors you were treating with before you ultimately discovered this on your own even right. diagnosed you with Lyme disease, Right. It was not even a thought in anyone's mind. So you were never tested and it was never a, never a topic of conversation for you. You were just a sickly kid and you developed a spirit to not only heal yourself, but be become a professional in the healing arts arena, correct? Correct, correct. Be, being sick. Interesting fact, though, in high school from 16 to, to 19, I worked in the hospital um, and all I did is know the drugs. I worked in the pharmacy, so I was running a pharmacy with all the medications. Um, I would do rounds with the doctors. I was going to be traditional surgeon or traditional ER surgery. I really like that fast paced kind of thing. Um, and then I finished UGA for my undergrad and was okay, headed. So, so what is, what is, what is UGA? So talk about, talks about where you went to college and what you studied rather than traditional medicine and why you studied what you studied rather than taking the traditional medical path. So I was a traditionalist, I guess. I don't know. I call myself a traditional doctor. I called them the new guys conventional. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so tell me, tell me why you didn't take the traditional path that conventional doctors would take, meaning you didn't pursue an MD or an allopathic uh, medical uh, training, you took a different path. Tell us why you went from having a passion to work in the traditional or or the conventional arena, and you then and then you pursued sure. a different educational path. So when I graduated University of Georgia with my undergrad, and I was waiting on med school, it was like sixteen months. I needed a job, of course, so I went to work with a chiropractor back in 1989. I didn't know what a chiropractor was. I never experienced anything like it. And 
he said, I'd love for you to work with me because I had a degree in, um, in neuropsychology and I could do stress tests and biofeedback. And he said, I'd love for you to work for me, but your eyes are drooping water. You're red. You're, you, you just don't look like a healthy person to represent in front of my patients. And then, you know, this day I'm drinking, I'm drinking milk with protein shakes and I'm in the gym trying to do what, you know, a lot of people do now. Um, they just so, wait a minute. so so the chiropractor said, wait a minute, you're a mess. We can't have you treating people when you're a mess. Then, they're gonna be they're gonna think you're gonna get like you. I would I would lean over and then the mucus would just drip right on the patients. It wasn't very <laughs> wasn't very good. In high school, I would literally have to leave the class and just lean over a rail and I was just just drop dripping histamine. So I knew about mast cells before mast cells became famous or you know, histaminic reactions and that kind of things. Um so so he taught me how to heal. He changed my diet. He changed my food. He gave me herbs and things like that. And I became healthier and healthier and healthier. And that medical school dream kind of fizzled out because when you learn a new fact that, remember, I grew up in the pharmacy, you know, diagnosis to drug, and you learn a new fact, I couldn't, I couldn't deny it. I had to figure out what this was about. So instead of going to med school, I went to a master's level neuromuscular massage school. <laughs> so I could try to, you know, get it, get my feet in there and learn what, you know, just distract me for a little while. After that, then I started finishing my, my degrees with naturopathics and, and into um, public health, uh, starting the clinic in 2000. We were just small, um, mom and pop, we're still mom and pop, but the phone calls just grew and grew and grew over the years. Functional medicine was always a part of my life because I wanted to fix me and my family and then be able to learn how to fix others at that point. So it comes from my own empirical experience. However, if what happened next was very unforeseen. I did SOT for Lyme, felt great. I got a reinfection by a brand new bite on my knee. My joint got septic. I knew it was an infection and I had to give myself IV uh, joint injections of Recephin, which is obviously used for Lyme. Um, I just knew how to fix a septic joint with Recephin. And um, about five or six weeks later, boom, it all happened. Meningitis, encephalopathy, like swelling, pain from head to toe. 103 degree temp. I couldn't even have the sensibility to go to my office to get treated. And that, that, that was like, I got to experience chronic Lyme and then I got to experience a new Lyme uh, infection. And then after that, we moved to this house that was covered in mold, which we didn't know. And I got neurologically and neurologically sicker and sicker. You can ask my wife and my mother, they were about to institutionalize me. I, I, I just, don't laugh at me. I couldn't, um, I, I, you know, I couldn't uh, rage, anger. Um, I've had many concussions. So you add that to it and it's even worse. So mold suppresses immunity more than anything. And then you kick up your Bartonella and then the new line. And I, I was just an absolute mess. I didn't know what was. Yeah, it sounds like, sounds like, sounds like, unfortunately, despite being a very smart man, um, you were a guy who was running around in the woods, as we call them here, uh, getting ticks all over you all during your childhood. Um, you kept getting these infections and you kept uh, kept managing the infections on your own. And you did your best to get treatment from a traditional, uh, a, well, again, you 
you like when you okay. conventional so yeah. from the conventional doctors or the medical doctors um that that um when you finally realize that that failed you especially when you did your your stint with the chiropractor of course came from a very different treatment philosophy where chiropractors understand um you know from 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 a philosophical standpoint that the body heals itself and we just have to get out of the way right and what we're supposed to be doing exactly. is supporting the body and letting the body heal itself rather than us trying to you know trying to um you know um just pump people up with all kinds of pharmaceuticals and other types of medications right and that was a sea change for you and an educational change for you and you now started to go down um this traditional rather than conventional path how am i doing this dr salt and uh <laughs> And and now and now you start to now treat people in in you know in in the confines of your uh, of the Genesis Center. So talk to us about how you began to treat people with Lyme disease. Was that before or after you ultimately uh, diagnosed yourself with Lyme disease? So I, I, once I once I learned not to use LabCorp and Quest, then I started with. I don't know if I can say names. You can, you can, yes. Okay, because I don't, I don't hold back because I want practitioners to learn. Medical Diagnostic Labs is in New Jersey. They are so appreciated and um, American American Pathology certified, even more than LabCorp Quest. That that's where I found Lyme for me. And instead of using, Stacy, can you find my SOT chart? Instead of using um, those labs, that's where I found that I had Lyme. Um, since then, the technology has grown, and we have another company called Vibrant. They have a newer technology. It uses a silicone wafer attached to the antibody. So when they use electrophoresis, they really can go into their spots. And instead of negative and positives, we need to know how negative or how positive. Okay, works. so so – just pause there. I want to stay a little bit more with your background and Matt is going to take you through all this stuff. I know you're excited to download this to us, but I want to stay with you. Now, did you treat people with Lyme disease prior to your diagnosis or did your diagnosis now open up the, 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 the prism through which you are now looking at people and now you start to see Lyme everywhere? Yeah. So, you know, I, I won't do anything to another person that I won't do to myself because I treat everybody like family. So I did well, my, but, but my question is a little bit different, Dr. So see, one of the things okay. we've heard from many of the practitioners that we've interviewed before is, is that when they didn't think Lyme, they didn't see Lyme, right? Because you're, because your, your mindset impacts or, or controls your cognition, right? Uh, so, so for example, we, we interviewed a, a Lyme uh, practitioner in the recent past who said that she was practicing in upstate New York for a long, long time. She uh, she went to a seminar with uh, with Dr. Horowitz and Dr. Horowitz, and she started started to define Lyme disease. And then after she after she defined Lyme disease, she said, "Wait, I think many of my patients." And she had been a practitioner for a long time. I think many of my patients have Lyme disease. And she said, "I may I, I think maybe you know, four or five percent." She said, four or five percent. You're in upstate New York. It's probably eighty percent. And all of a sudden, yeah. the world opened up to her, and she now started to see this. So I'm asking you, this is the this is the piece that I'm trying to get okay. uh, to with you. Did you start treating Lyme disease before you were diagnosed or did your diagnosis then put you in a position where you had a different mindset and then you started to see the symptoms in many other people? Both. Before I realized we could use a treatment that would have a 95% effective rate, 
I I treated Lyme, but it was from a pro, you know, from a prophylactic standpoint, it was, it wasn't curative. It was just managing symptoms. Patients would get better. Then they would, you know, go through something, they would get worse. Um, but I never claimed to be an expert or anything about it. Then it was just a really complicated topic that I would not be treating right now if I didn't have the new variables that I have. Um, and and if, you didn't, if you didn't have it yourself. So it's both. It's both. So I treated it palliatively and now we treat it curatively. And that led me on the journey for all the laboratory stuff. Um, to make sure that we could have variables and intensities, not negative, negative and positive values. Okay. So, so one of the things I now want to do with you um, is talk with you about Lyme disease and how you define Lyme disease. This is, you know, it, what, one of the things that we find to be fascinating about the Lyme disease topic. And and um, although we're not the Lyme nerds, that's you. We're the Lyme geeks here at Tick Bootcamp. Um, you know, we 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 find it to be, you know, unbelievably um, uh, strange that there are almost as many definitions for this disease as there are practitioners who are treating it. So give us your definition for Lyme disease. It's the greatest mimicker of all disease. Um, it mimics every disease in the book, including the fact that it's been well-researched that maybe 70 up to 90% of autoimmune diseases are based on, on Lyme spirochetal illnesses. I very much differ between a CDC criteria diagnosis of Lyme, which is nothing more than a CDC criteria. If I am. Now remember you're, you're writing and this is an audio only podcast. So you're going to have, okay. you're going to have to describe what you're writing. Okay. So what I'm writing is two camel humps. Okay. Camel humps. The first camel hump is IgM. And the second, second camel hump is IgG. And I have a beautiful graph. Maybe I can send it to you guys. Um, so when you get an infection in your body, your IgM antibodies uh, um, react. And that is a whole immunoglobulin system that it shows you something's there, is bursting to get to that infection. And that's where we get a peak. CDC criteria is only at the very top. And then you get a trough where a lot of my patients are in the trough below CDC criteria. And then it moves over to IgG criteria, which again, only the very top of that is a CDC criteria for officially aligned diagnosis. But now we honor the infection of Borrelia burgdorferi without necessarily having to have a Lyme diagnosis. All right. So let me let me give you the tick boot camp definition of, of Lyme disease. And let's debate a little bit about that before Matt takes you uh, through the next phase of the podcast. So we okay. define um, Lyme disease as a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. We reject the CDC definition and we reject most of the other definitions that you would hear for this disease. And, and, uh, and our position is, again, it's polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. What would your reaction be to the tick boot camp definition of Lyme disease? I totally, totally agree. Um, the only difference is as a practitioner, if I put Lyme disease as a diagnosis, then it has to be CDC criteria Lyme disease as they're diagnosing, because I don't want to get run out of the country. Um, so typically we don't put it on any documents at all. I'll tell a patient the intensity of the value shows that you're at a CDC criteria or the intensity of the value. Cause we're using number intensities. We're not using negative and positive. So I can say that 
you're in a chronic criteria, alternate criteria, or you're high at a CDC criteria, it's a spirochetal in illness. Um, I think you know where it came from. <laughs> um, and, well, it, I, you know, and, and, and that is controversial about where it came from and why it's as viral as it is now. But um, that's a that's a, a separate conversation. I want to stay with you, you know, a okay. little bit longer on this definition of Lyme disease. And the reason we argue that Lyme disease is a polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease is because with the definition of disease comes the treatment plan, right? And the problem with having a CDC definition or the CDC definition that you're beginning to discuss with me is that if you do in fact use a CDC de uh, definition of this disease, uh, then it should be relatively easy to diagnose and relatively yeah. easy to treat, right? But we know that it's very difficult to diagnose and we know that it's very difficult to treat in large part because it is not one bacteria, one strain of one bacteria, it's just simply not, right? It, 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 it's so much more than that. And if we're going to limit our definition to that, then we're going to be limiting our um, our diagnostic analysis to a very, very narrow scope. And as a result of that, there are many people who have this uh, terrible chronic illness uh, and, and are never even diagnosed with it. That's correct. Spirochetal Ill illnesses, the longer you have them, the less they drop off of that criteria. And I'm not stuck on CDC criteria. It just makes it really easy. There's no guesswork. <laughs> um, well, and, and it's easy. I understand it's easier to, you know, to be given the freedom to treat this. And I understand that it's easier to get the freedom to be paid by insurance carriers. And I understand that because of the because of the problems associated with the definition. But but in fact, you know, if if this is, um, you know, and, and again, we're excited to talk to you about, you know, targeted therapies as yeah. opposed to broad spectrum therapies. But this is a broad spectrum disease. It simply yeah. is. Right. Um, right. And it is a disease, at least in, in our experience, where if you use a chiropractic philosophy where you get out of the way and you just aid the body and the immune system to kill disease, that's the place where you have to be to be successful. But we have to find a place to first define this before we right. can get to the place where we can advocate for using the, the treatment philosophy that you were trained in and inspired you uh, to go the traditional path rather than the conventional path. <laughs> And 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 that and that is the key. I, I can't say enough about proper testing. My patients always say, "Well, I've been tested." Well, no, you you've been tested in one way, but we're going to test you with the most up to date technical analysis we can with one hundred percent sensitivities. Hopefully, ninety nine hundred percent sensitivities and validation studies. Um, it's cheaper than it ever has been, and it's more accurate than it ever has been. Okay, and 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 Matt's going to talk to you a little bit more about the treatment yeah. in a minute. I mean, the, the, the testing in a minute, because, um, you know, there are some specialty labs that have some assays that are good for certain types of microbes in this spectrum that we call uh, a polymicrobial infection. Um, but, uh, but, but the truth is testing sucks, right? I mean, there really isn't a great test. And I want, and, and again, Matt's going to talk with you about that. Okay, but, I won't, but, I'll come uh, in then. On balance, on balance, testing really sucks, right? It's better than it's ever been before at this day and time. Okay. Also, this is an interesting fact. When we order the treatment, the lab calls it a viral agonist, a viral antagonist. They laugh at us when we call it a bacteria. It's in a virulent pathway. 
Okay. Okay. Because it's polymicrobial, right? I mean, it is, mm-hmm. it is, it, it, so I, I don't necessarily disagree with, uh, with it being a virulent p- pathway because it's going to be bacteria. It's going to be viruses. It's going to be protozoa. It's going to be mold. It's going to be yeast. It's going to be but, many, many microbes. So let's dig deeper on that. Right. Because, you know, people listening and we've had many people like DNA connections, for example, would slap us silly. Like she slapped you silly, Rich. When you said Lyme disease is a polymicrobial infection, she said, no, Richard, it is not. It is a single bacterial infection with Burley-Burgdorferi. So Dr. Sloan, can you tell us what, what, what you mean? Were you meaning what Rich said, where it has a viral complement, possibly reactivated viruses, or, or were you specifically focusing on Lyme itself having a viral component? Can you just give us a little more, a little more detail on that? So the spirochetal illness on the outside of the body, it, it tests genetically as a bacteria. On the inside of the body, it uses a virulent pathway. It's like H. pylori is a bacteria in the stomach, right? But it's a it's virulent. Um, when you do DNA on it, it's a virulent pathway. Yes, um, that's fascinating. Yeah, and that makes it that's what makes it so contagious, um, and keep keeps it in a different different category. I would say that I mean the replication sequences, the fact that it's so small. It can actually get into the myelin, into the joint, into the tissue, and it causes immune reactions. I don't call I don't call anything an autoimmune disease. I call it an immune reaction because it's your immune system trying to protect you from a pathogen, and and mean in, in doing so, it can make some side effects of immunity. Um, but yeah, the, the, it, it is very different than co-infections because co-infections like Bartonella babesia they're very they're very they're very big. So they can fit just into one red blood cell or spirochetal illness. You, you, you take biopsy units found in every organ and tissue in the body in 72 hours. But not only are they different sizes, right? The spirochete can change forms. It can go into a cyst form to avoid antibiotics. It can right. shape shift and lose its, you know, its cell, outer cell. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that the Lyme bacteria can do. It can penetrate the uh-huh. brain. We've also learned that ticks are supercharged, ticks supercharge Lyme, Lyme bacteria. And if we were to inject pure Lyme bacteria, into a human, it's less damaging than Lyme bacteria from a, you know, a host or a reservoir like a like a mouse or a rat to a tick to a human, right? So, what are your thoughts on that, Doctor Sloan? As far as how it evolves and makes it even more damaging to the human. So the genus, the, gen- the genuses of spirochetes, we know there are almost two hundred of the genuses. So um, they have to identify that specific genotype. Um, e- even for now, when I'm using vibrant wellness. They look at five different genuses of Bartonella, four different genuses of Babesia. So they're getting really specific on our targets. And that's the most important part is to identify the correct target in the order of pathogenicity. So we're, you know, as quick as I can, I want to work somebody out of my office. Um, yeah, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about that testing though, right? Because, you know, I, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier. It's about, it's not about a positive or negative. It's about intensities. And I think you, you mean... We need more granular level of detail when we have a blood test, not just your positive or negative. And you can be extremely positive. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of data that comes with the graph you kind of showed before, right? That bell curve you were referring to. Right. Uh, and and I think with that, it helps us have more informed decisions. But I did sense you disagree with Rich, and I want to encourage you if you disagree to to you know express your opinion because Rich and I love to learn and grow, and we're not we're not set in our ways, right? So we want to hear your side. You know, did we've been told by a lot of, was that? Did I disagree with you? Just, no, I thought I thought you were. You I, thought I, sensed, I thought I sensed you were, and you were being polite with Rich when he said testing really is still not great. And you're like, well, I think it's better. You know, even even the, the other other Lyme testing companies we've had on, whether it's Genex, DNA Connections, whether it's 
you know, whomever, they tell us that, you know, we've come a long way, but it's still not perfect, right? And I think that's because we, we always hear the two fundamental problems are if we look for the actual DNA, we do like PCR direct testing. The issue is Lyme bacteria does not exist in a high concentration in our body. So it's the luck of the draw, whether or not that sample of blood will have the actual DNA or the, the spirochete in it, right? And then conversely, when we look at the antibody response and we're looking more for an immune response rather than the actual direct detection, it's is the immune system actually responding the way we think it will? And or just other surface proteins. Right. Or, exactly. Right. Or, or the immune compromise because of chronic Lyme or whatever it may be. Right. So that, that's, I think, what Rich meant when he said testing is not great. But, you know, if we'd love to hear your side about how yeah. these tests have been improved based on what I just described. Sure. So um, there is no PCR testing in America that will ever find anything. It is a first pass. They do not amplify any data to amplify data like they did the COVID test. It's amplified you know, 38 to 42 cycles or something like that. And, and, and it's almost over amplified, but you have to amplify tech one nest genotypes for Lyme bacteria. And you have to dig in deeper until you pass EBV because EBV is going to replicate faster. It's always going to replicate faster. Um, HSV one through seven, they're going to replicate faster. Viruses, innate viruses replicate faster than Lyme. So they have to dig deep enough and they're identifying that specific RNA DNA sequence and and comparing it to the database so they make sure they match it. Um, can I can I stop you there? I want to I want to dumb that down for me, right? So it, what I'm hearing is if we're looking for the DNA of Lyme bacteria, oftentimes Lyme will reactivate things like Epstein Barr virus or some sort of herpes virus or whatever it may be, and when we're looking for that DNA. These reactivated viruses or potentially co-infections can confuse the testing because there's DNA of other foreign things in the body that have to be weeded out first before we can see the Lyme DNA or am I totally misunderstanding um, what you just said? I mean, we're, we're look. yeah, I'm sorry. We're looking for the target. So I tell the lab what target to look for. And then they match that, that target to the, to the internet international database of known targets. Um, so we're not just randomly looking at something. It is. Um, so, so DNA connections does use a PC, a tech one S genotype. There's just some variables with that test that may make it false. Uh, not, you know, just, I think some people slide through that, that, that test, even though that's, that's a great test. If they find it, it's there. If they don't find it, it still may be there. Let's put it to you that way. So my, my sickest patients can't go jogging for an hour or get a brisk massage. Um, it'll put them over the top to like try to share the DNA more. And um, the antibody response is what we look at, but since I'm looking at intensity values, I always know if you're living in mold, your antibodies aren't gonna be correct. Why? Because it's the most immunosuppressive pathogen in the human body. Um, I can tell you from my experience, when we moved in this house, I had mycophenolic acid as a mycotoxin. MPA, this is crazy guys, mycophenolic acid, is made exactly directly into a drug called Cellcept. Cellcept is used to suppress your immune system when you get an organ transplant so you don't reject your organ. And I had that at a level of 530, should be less than 37. I just had a 17-year-old bed-bound patient. I cleared every bug. They're clear. She's still in the bed. Family swears she doesn't have mold. I run a mycotoxin test. She's at 6,000 on MPA. Wow. Wow. Well, I let me ask you a follow up on that. Move her out of that house right now. 
how did you know she had Lyme if if Lyme I'm sorry if mold suppresses the immune system where you're not going to generate antibodies test positive how did you know she had Lyme to, to treat Lyme and bugs first before even looking at mold right that's that's okay. an interesting concept yeah so you're looking at intensity values this is why that I, I was uncovering every stone I could uncover when SOT was available because I'm I, I definitely want to find it I want to see how intense or less intense um so maybe I don't think anybody's initial antibody test is where they really are because I think spirochetes hide so well, Bartonella hides in red blood cells, but BBZ hides in red blood cells. So until you draw it out, you're not going to have the antibody response. But that's why we use chronic criteria. I don't know. 90% of my patients are not in the CDC criteria. They're all chronic criteria. And we're looking at extremely specific bands. I don't just look at the company's positive or negative. I look at the most important bands that are very Lyme targeted to make sure that we have the right, right um, target of pathogenicity and the proper treatment of or in the right order. So let's talk about your mold. You said, I believe it was MT, MPT mold. And we had Dr. Jill Carnahan on and she really blew me away with the various mold mycotoxin species and how they impact us differently, right? You hear mold and you think, oh, mold, I'm exposed to mold and I'm going to be sick, but there's different types of mold that impact us differently, most of which are immuno, immunosuppressive. But and she talked about certain mold that can make people depressed or anxious or aggressive or angry or potentially even like homicidal and suicidal. So like, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Do you concur that there's different emotions, extreme emotions that can result yeah. from different types of mold exposures? So you have mold exposure like from Aspergillus that, that, that will flag um, uh, food-based mold. They're not so immunosuppressive, but stachybotrys and mycophenolic acid or MPA are extremely immunosuppressive. Like I said, it turns they turn it into a drug. So it's very important to me which ones that you have in your body, because I cannot make you well if you're living in a condition that is so immunosuppressive that we can't get on top of things. So really we have to remediate or remove the individual from the environment in order to be able to help them feel better if they're in a moldy environment, correct? Right, correct. If I see stachybotrys or MPA, I'm saying get out of the house. If I'm seeing arachidonic acid, uh, uh, sorry, ochratoxin, then, um, or or um, the one found in peanut butter, as, uh, alpha, alpha toxin, then I'm saying you need to go look at the list and see if you're getting in these food-based, anything dried, anything you lay out to dry, coffee beans, dried fruit, that kind of thing. Can can raise arachidonic acid and it's uh, sorry ochratoxin and it's the most common for everybody. So, Dr. let's let's bring this back to the conversation you and I were having a moment ago, which is uh, you learned when you were working with the chiropractor and the chiropractic philosophy is that the body heals itself, right? right. And one of the first things you have to look at is to see if somebody is living in an immunosuppressive environment, meaning they have a moldy environment that will stop the body from healing itself as opposed to taking some other steps. Correct, correct. Even for me personally, I didn't know I'd had, I had Bartonella until I started using Vibrant because um, it tested negative on MDL, which is really good. But they, there's two companies, they have different testing procedures. They use different proteins from different companies. So I may have high Bartonella on one and low Bartonella on the other one um, or vice versa. So that's why I use those two. Help us with the help us with the mold piece. I want to build out that piece a little bit more before Matt takes you forward, which is 
if you are living in a, in a moldy environment and Matt is taking you through these different strains of mold and the impact that each of them are going to have, and you just share with us that you were angry, you were getting aggressive because yeah. you were in the mold environment. And, and But hold on to that piece for a second and let's yeah. take the next step with me, which is if you are living in a high mold environment and that mold is suppressing your immune system, then you are not going to have antibodies responding to the pathology um, and as a result, the tests are not going to be able to pick up any antibody reaction to to the to the pathogens that your body is harboring. So that's kind of true, but it's not totally true. You're going to have you're going to have suppressed antibodies. That's why I use intensity values instead of negative and positive. So yes, I may see. I saw a patient today. She was alternate criteria positive, um, but she had VLSE one. VLSC1 is extremely important as a single diagnosis for Lyme disease. So I will look at that and maybe, maybe even somebody's negative on the CDC criteria and alternate criteria. But if I see 39, um, 31, 34, 93, 23, a VLSC1, a C6, I, I know they have mold. Even the piece of paper says, I'm sorry, Lyme, even if the piece of paper says negative, uh, we can still get a treatment for that because they're, you know, they're specific. Now, this is kind of cool. You'll, you'll appreciate this. Once I do a treatment, I learned that I was testing too early, retesting too early because the, the antibodies would go up due to, due to exposure to the pathogen before they come down. And I don't want to waste your time or money getting the up part. So we learned you know, when the timing was right. And I, I worked with Vibrant six months with the chief scientists before I even started using them because I, when I say do this, do that, do that in this world and in my media and stuff, people are going to start using it. I don't want to lead anybody down the wrong direction. So they, um, um, so they're, they're, they're just, they're, they're really good. So, so once, once the, the, the pathogen is exposed and you have immune response, you have higher antibody levels, or I can see higher intensities. And then, and then after that, they start dropping down. Um, so I wouldn't say it's, you will show no antibody response. You'll show a lowered antibody response. So it's really playing detective. If somebody's chronic and potentially from your analysis seems immune compromised and they have some antibodies, you can deduce that maybe those antibody levels would be higher if they had a more stable immune system and then you treat. Is that kind of the, the logic you're using? Correct, correct. Yeah, correct, correct. And Dr. Horowitz will shoot me if I say this. But even in the beginning, I would treat the Lyme first and then see what the body would do with Bartonella and Babesia because a lot of times it can do some really good work. And then I realized I'm not going to use antibiotics for those anymore. I'm using antiparasitics, hydroxychloroquine, methylene blue. I'm going to use antiseptics. Um, we're getting away from harmful therapies into therapies that are kind of quicker. They don't make you sicker before you get better. And that's the whole deal with me because before 2016, I was using SRTs 2014 to, for cancer. And then 2016, we started with uh, the Lyme world. Um, and that's that's really what, what turned me and changed me into this because I would not be treating Lyme on this level if I didn't have that. If, if I didn't have these tools. And look, Dr. Sloan, what you just said makes perfect sense. And I actually made an opposing argument to Nicole Baumgarten. And, you know, she's the head of the, the, the Lyme Center, I believe, at Johns Hopkins. And she uh, she said to me, no, Matt, if, if we treat somebody and they get better, 
She goes, then that was the, that was the trick because we need to get the immune system healthy enough or stable enough. And we need to get the pathogen level low enough where the body can start to recoup on its own. And you encounter things all the time. You know, Rich could have lines he's in probably does right now and he's managing it because his immune system is healthy enough and he's healthy enough. So I think the, bal- the, the trick is getting your body back into balance, lifestyle, immune modulation, decreasing the microbes until you get to that tipping point where your body can start to on its own fight back. Right. I think that's what you're describing here. Yeah. So my five, my five big ones are testing properly for mold inside and outside the body. Second, using proper testing for all the Borrelias, um, Burdorfri's top. It's more immunosuppressive than the European spirochetes that are around. Um, they're not really considered Lyme anyway. And then looking for innate viruses that have resurfaced, we treat the bad bugs first. We treat innate, innate viruses after that. Um, always, always dealing with candida and antifungals. I keep my patients on antifungals the whole treatment. And that's why the word on the street is your SOTs work better than others. I'm like, no, I'm looking at all of these factors. And and then, you know, you get to the mold stuff. So the the, the order of pathogenicity, if you if you treat Lyme with, with a treatment, but you don't take care of candida, you're not going to feel any better. If you don't do proper co-infection testing and you use antisense for, you're not going to feel any better. And well, you you did a post though, Dr. Sloan, about candida, right? And I think I just want to point this out because, uh, and apologies for interrupting, but I think it's really important for our listeners to hear this. You said that candida can actually result in more brain fog than Lyme disease. Is that correct? Correct. So a lot of people who are like, I'm treating Lyme and the brain fog's not going away. They should maybe look at candida or or fungus right because I, you know so many of these symptoms overlap potentially so i think yeah. it's such a hard idea to figure out what's causing what well that's you know so candida is treated with a very easy antifungal called nystatin it's a fatty acid it, it is compounded it doesn't get into the bloodstream so it just cleans off the walls um then we can use systemic antifungals like doflucan to reach into the bloodstream so i keep my patients on a routine of those the whole time i'm doing SOT layering, co-infection layering, um, checking for innate viruses, and then making sure that you remove yourself from mold. And that that combination of things just really sets it in motion. Because if you treat any one of those without treating the other ones, you're I call it chasing rabbits, man. I am not I'm not going to be chasing rabbits. Well, what about the mold? Sometimes we hear people need additional support even once they remove themselves from the mold environment, and they talk about various binders whether they're herbal, whether they're pharmaceutical. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's something you do with your patients or is that something that will resolve itself and the detox pathways in the body will assist in removing mycotoxins once you're removed if you do all those other things you just described? Well, not if you have methylation impairments and not if you have candida in the gut. Because if you have candida, you're going to respond to mold so much dramatically. Um, In my house, my mother and I turned that that penicillium into mycophenolic acid, Stacey, turn it into a different pathway. So there, there's where you come into the HLAs and the complements and CA and C4s. Can you explain that a little bit simpler for, our, for for me and everybody listening? So it sounds like you you were you and your family were exposed to mold, but because we're bio-individually different, everybody in your family responded differently to the mold exposure. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. Yes. We So through our genetic pathways, we detoxify it differently and you're going to create some mycotoxins differently. Even a patient who's sick, living in a no, normal aspergillus, you can't get away from it. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. So that means that if you upregulate it through a pathway, it's going to cause more trouble. And 
So that, that, that that's one of my upfront testing. I, I, I can't just, I can't ignore that at all. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's very helpful. So let's go back to, I want to talk more about the definition you gave earlier, just quickly, because I think this is something that, that stuck out of my mind when you're talking with Rich is you said you've transitioned from a, you know, functional, we've tra- transitioned from functional medicine to quantum medicine. Can you just give us a quick definition? What is quantum medicine and how is it better than functional medicine? Cause you know, everybody well, comes to this podcast, functional medicine is the way to go for Lyme disease. And you're saying, Hey, functional is good, but quantum is where it's at right now. Right. We're adding it all together, functional integrative. So we do, you know, functional, man, there's so many doctors that go through functional classes they teach you how to test. They don't teach you how to treat or make a protocol. Secondly, integrative means that you can use some medications that are functional medications, not palliative care, curative care. Third, we start bringing in the mind, body, soul connections to it. You know, you get this patient whose thoughts are random and they're all over the place and they're freaking them out and they're anxious and they can't get it together because, you know, those things then it's like this. It's like once I show them labs and I can bring their thoughts kind of into alignment of, I don't know what I have. Now I can show them what they have. Their thoughts get into more of an alignment. And when they do that, they can center and focus on the things that need to be changing the most. So it's kind of like a conversational direction. Well, don't you think that since you have this, we could put this over here. We could put this one over here. And I go let, back. Let, let, let's build this out a little bit more, Dr. Sloan, because the we, we know that we have a binary brain. We know that we're going to have either the sympathetic or parasympathetic expression of our nervous system. And we understand that if if we are in the sympathetic expression of our nervous system, that is also going to be immunosuppressive. And because that's going to be immunosuppressive, the body cannot heal itself. Right. So going back to your Going back to your to your insight when you were back in mm-hmm. your chiropractic training, uh, or or your 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 um, you know your, the, the time when you were doing your apprenticeship with the chiropractor, um, you learned that we that our body has to heal itself. But it's not only those pathogens or mold or other microbes that are immunosuppressive, but it's also our mindset and the expression of our nervous system. And one of the things that you're doing as a, as a quantum um, practitioner is you're recognizing that it's not just the body and it's not just pathogens, but it's also mindset. It, it, it is, but <laughs> when you have these these bugs genetically modified doing so much damage to your system, like Bartonella will make you have ideations. Bartonella institutionalizes more, more patients than they probably know. It's, 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 uh, it, it is, I mean, our, our streets and the, all the hallucinations and all that stuff. I mean, it's probably, it's probably due to these infections. I think, I think most everything that we live through are due to minor infections. And then I get into, to heavy metals kind of on a later date if i need to get into that with parkinson's and dementias and stuff like that um we we need to get to dementia a little bit rich because that that ties into some of the cancer and and mcdonald and and shop you work we're not there yet (laughs) so 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 you essentially you're arguing is there there are two different elements to the mindset presentation and the sympathetic expression of the nervous system one is an infectious cause meaning you could have you could have a bacteria like bartonella that is causing you to have a a um a 
an expression that is triggering you, um, or you could be you could be um, triggered as a result of of um, medical trauma um, and, oh, and, yeah. and the other experiences that come along with medical trauma and being gaslit by family members and friends and and those elements. So th- th- this is a multi multi um, um, I guess elemental uh, trigger that you have to be aware of and you have to help your patients to understand which is why you're you're, you're defining yourself as a quantum uh, practitioner rather than uh, an integrative or a functional practitioner yes i it's all combined but i i, I agree with the point and and then and then the other point is that if you have these low grade infections creating a biochemical reaction then the thoughts and ideations are going to be different so you know i had a patient um, who could not leave her house from anxiety. Uh, treated line. Two weeks later, she's driving around the city. Um, it, it, it goes even to my athletes who are, are sick. Um, I mean, it's just the same for everybody. This does not discriminate between age, you know, payroll, um, yeah. No, yeah. So, so, so let, let's talk about this. So, so what, what's happening, what's happening with this expression of your nervous system is that your neural pathways are being altered, right? And your neural pathways could be altered as a result of, of bugs being in your brain, as a result of the, the, the chemical expressions of the, of the bugs in your body or your brain, or yes. it could be, or your neural, um, your, your, your neural pathways could be altered as a result of experiential, uh, some before the illness, some during the illness, some right. after the chronic phase of the illness. Right. So that's why I go proper testing, proper treatment in order the pathogenicity, proper retesting. And then when I see the bugs going away, I go into healing phases. And my healing phases is when we use peptides, stem cells. Um, we're doing ketamine IV. This has been miraculous for patients to break that PTSD and that depressive state that Lyme brain will get into. And, um, you know, I, I'm trying to get to each step, but s- patients will go do stem cells when they still have Lyme. Well, it's not going to work. You're, you're wasting your time because Lyme is going to break down those again right away. And you're going to have to redo it later. But what about stem cells, Dr. Sloan, when people out of histamine issues? We've had people come on this podcast and tell us they did stem cells for Lyme. They spent a ton of money and they got even worse. And afterwards, they learned from other doctors that because they were more prone to histamine reactions, their body simply couldn't tolerate it. And they got far sicker and it, it never bounced back. And other people say, oh, the first six months really sucked. But then I, I was amazing. Right. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> we do a stem cell method from RGCC that they, they take it from your own blood. Um, two Nobel Prizes have been given for this technology. I'm going to talk fast through this. Um, they take stem cells from your blood, which have been tagged to do a job. They've learned to remove the DNA so that it reverts them back to embryonic. So they're pluripotent stem cells now. They preserve the telomere so it doesn't have an aging cycle. So we put these stem cells in the patient and they continue to grow to multiple trillions over that year. Um, whereas you go out of the country, you get stem cells, they're going to make a hit. They're going to tag the stress signals and they're gone. Um, so our stem cell technique is, is by far greater than what I've seen in embryonic stuff from other. So the quality and the extraction process that allows it to be more sustainable and not as shocking to the system. Yeah. It's it's the, okay. However, out of a couple of hundred patients, if these stem cells, and I call them God's miracle molecules, 
Okay. If these stem cells decide that they need to go into your immunity, into your bone marrow, and then they need to fix something, oh boy, within a few hours, you are shaking like you're getting the worst flu of your life. Um, so, I mean, they're so intelligent that they have, they know their, their level of hierarchy of the most important down to the least importance, which is just amazing. They break a frog leg and tag stem cells with radioactive isotope. And then you see they go to the, the break first and then they go to the nervous system and then they go over here and then they go over there. So they've done studies like that where they, they like yeah. break and, and they'll see where the stem cells go and it goes to the most important part first. Wow. Yep. yep. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So but that's my healing phase. That's later. Peptides, eutropics. Um, I love that. I love that conversation. So that's really like that's more of repairing and healing and recovering after we do the kill, right? Okay. So from so stem cells, peptides, all that stuff. So what do you what are you doing for the kill side of the protocol? So the kill side is what I learned from RGCC and the ability for us to turn off the replication sequence of certain targets. Um, their research on it for their lab is 95% effective, which is a number I may think is a little bit on the low side. Um, but they they are ultimate side. It's a Swiss company. They chose Greek scientists because they actually created medicine. <laughs> And they, they will tell you that they're, I mean, these guys have photographic memories. I mean, I can't hardly ask them an intelligent question without feeling stupid. But um, um, so for the kill side, it transitions from first visit. And again, I'm not petitioning the business. First side, we get the proper testing done from Vibrant and, and MDL and whatever lab core I need to do for their specific symptoms. Second visit, literally now. I get to sit down and explain that exactly what we need to do first, second, to third. And, and in that same time, we start a, a co-infection protocol, which are not harmful as they used to be. They're not antibiotic protocols. What's uh, in your were, co-infection protocol? Um, so for Bartonella, methylene blue and Artemisia, you know, they turned, you know, Artemisia, they, they made a drug called Cardum, but Cardum is hard to tolerate. Um, and and disulfiram is and that's a, you know for for what so why does an antifungal help Lyme you know because it releases that out of surface protein and most of the time it's a fungal protein it's kind of strange you know so the so the outer surface protein of the Lyme bacteria we've we've heard them called OSPA OSPC right that's what you're referring to there's different expressions of the outer part of the bacteria correct imagine a, a jet going through the air and there's a missile coming toward it so it shoots off all the flares yep. We've seen images of this under the microscope and we've seen, you know, other, other researchers show when they come under attack, they release these, these outer surface proteins is almost like, like you said, a flare where it's trying to deflect. So it can't get to the core right. to, and, and kill the bacteria. Right. I mean, you're looking at a genetically modified bacterium viral infection that, that can hide from 30 something, 40 something different abilities to try to try to kill it. My patients go to Germany, hyperthermia. Oh, they feel good. And dude, it will turn off antibody response like a champion and they'll feel good for a certain period of time, but it's palliative care. It's palliative. It's, you know, it's going to, it's going to resurface due to any other immune dysregulation. Um, that's why I do what I do. Cause I don't like to play around. 
Well, um, that, that's interesting. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to bring you back, but you were talking about disulfiram and I distracted you. Can you, if you want to go back to disulfiram, because we first learned about that years ago from our, our friend Brooks Stoddard at a generation lineman. He shared with us that it was his, his game changer and he's that helped him get his life back. Other people come on and say cause psychosis and they had severe neuropsychological responses to it and couldn't tolerate. So yeah. you know, how do you use it? And what are your thoughts on that? I've never used it in my, in my, in my practice. Ever. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll use fluconazole and antifungals. Um, but I won't use that. I don't, I don't have to make people sicker anymore to make them better. So that's one of those that, um, yeah, I'm just not going to use it. Um, that's why I cover my five antifungals. And that's part of that, that process there. And, and, and then, you know, the other four that I've talked about my big, my big five. So there are other safer methods to do that and, and, and move that up. Again, but it's palliative care. Is he still on the drug today? I don't know, honestly. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, bet so. I, I, I don't know. Well, it's it's like what I call the antibiotic loop, right? People go on antibiotics, they feel better. And I mean, other for you, people have heard this. I've said this, you know, a couple of times on this podcast where I went to a big Lyme event and Rich was there with me. And at the end of the event, there was a ton of people that shamed me for not being on long-term antibiotics. And they said, yeah, it's the only way to go. And they've been on it for many, many, many years. And I won't do it because I, I see that, you know, people oh. go on antibiotics for years. We've learned the negative consequences from all, all the smart people like yourself on this podcast. And ultimately, when you stop them, you get really bad again. And you, you just maintain a, a certain level of sickness. And it just doesn't get worse. When you go off, you get worse, right? So that, Listen, that whole concept is very, very familiar with us. Yeah, you're chasing rabbits, man. I mean, like I said, I wouldn't be treating like I do. I wouldn't be proactive like I am, if I didn't have something that had a 95% effective cure rate and I could move along, I dismiss patients every day. I get them out of their beds, out of their wheelchairs. Um, my, my 30 and under generation is my hardest, my hardest patients, man, I guess they're just born with more methylation impairments, more detoxification issues. They're just sick. And these kids have no life. Um, I guess, you know, for for us, we have a little bit more drive and we're, we're older and probably older than both of you. <laughs> but I do well, stem So I'm really 82 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. You look like you're 40, but you're really 87. So <laughs> t- tell us, I, I want to, well, first of all, I want to, I want to give a success story. Obviously, Rich talked about Kelsey Watkins. I mean, she's out, she's out in the gym. She's killing it. She's doing things that I can never do at my healthiest of my life. Right. I mean, she's like, she's living life and loving it. So, you know, and she, she's, credits her healing to you one of the things we've heard from other people though so obviously sot is a really powerful tool we a lot of people have used it with great success the one thing we've heard from critics about it is it is extremely specific and targeted to a specific type of pathogen and a specific subset or strain of that pathogen and if you're really sick with a lot of different pathogens and a lot of different co-infections it may not be enough to help you feel better and you have to go do multiple SOTs for multiple pathogens and multiple strains to eventually feel better. How do you respond to those critics to say things like that? Um, the other patients that do other SOT podcasts are, are typically my patient. <laughs> I'm thinking of one in particular, but you have to cover. I am, I'm, I'm getting driven crazy by clinics who say, I want to be, I want to do SOTs. They want to make money. So they learn how to stick it and put it in you, but they're not testing properly. They're not, they're not doing the right order of the pathogenicity. I hear people getting 10 or 15 SRTs. 
I seldom have to do more than two. Hardly ever. But are you saying that the, the, the other practitioners are not properly testing to identify the specific type of pathogen and therefore they're wasting an SOT because they're giving a a SOT treatment that's supposed to kill a specific pathogen that they don't have? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so I'll ask you a question. Um, you do not you do not treat innate viruses that live in every one of us before you get rid of the ones that don't belong in us. Right. Right. So when you get, you know, get out of that mold situation, get that, get that spirochete down, then your immune system wakes up. And this is why I have like an eight week visit to see if I'm, I'm flaring some EBV or if you've had COVID, you're always going to flare EBV. I don't care what this long, long haul COVID is EBV flares or innate viruses flaring period. Um, and then, you know, I, I I I had to do two EBV SOTs because I've battled it my whole life, man. I mean, I, there's not much I, I haven't been through that my patients haven't been through. Even like depersonalization and 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 neurological issues to a point where you don't even feel like you're attached. Um, so I understand that perspective. It's horrible, but and I've had concussions, so I don't. I, it's just a bad place. <laughs> Ask me the question again. Well, I do want to, I'm going to quickly just take a side tour here. Okay. I say that we've had so many people on this podcast and it blows my mind how many out of almost 400 um, guests tell us I've had a or several concussions and then I became chronically with Lyme. Do you think there's a connection? Because it seems so odd to me that so many people end up with concussions or, you know, sometimes we hypothesize that are we so sick that we end up, you know, falling hmm. and, and getting concussions? Like, is, is there a connection or am I just, am I just, fine, right. you know, imagining this, you know? Yeah. Well, well two things. First of all, Concussions make inflammatory conditions in your brain. Uh, second of all, um, Lyme feels like a concussion. Bartonella feels like a concussion. So if a person expresses their illness pathways in a certain order, no matter what happens with them and to them, whatever their immune system is responding to, then they're going to feel that same expression of illness. God made the body perfect. He did not make it to fail. And and that extremely that's my that's my number one on top of the list. What I'm doing is what you said. I'm looking at things that don't belong there to remove them and letting the body do its job. I'm getting things out of the way so the body can do its job. And then we have things that, that shouldn't be in us that we've been tested on through with for. And um, that, you know, that makes it complicated, but rule number one, I'm looking for things that are in the way for our body being perfect, like God intended to, and then letting the immune system wake up and do its job. And, but I'm so, I'm so convinced that Bartonella causes more day to day to day to day symptoms than Lyme, hmm. that Lyme spirochetes can drill through your brain a quarter of a centimeter in two hours. That's not through the blood flow. That's through your tissue. So you have so Lyme creates more neurological and specific symptoms. So let's say this: if you have Lyme in your brain, Lyme brain, you're going to develop more um, symptoms that would mimic Parkinson's, MS, dementias. Okay, let's go back to autonomic sympathetic response systems. So there's a test from Vibrant that check to test for. They stain immune cells to see where they've been. So 
three pages, we can actually see where their immune system is reacting to in what part of the brain. If you're having cerebellum reaction, you're going to have sympathetic and autonomic nerve response issues. And what do you do? You don't do anything for it specifically. You remove the bug. So is that like a reverse engineering? Like, let's see where the immune cells have been, and that's going to help us identify what illnesses or or conditions they may have? So when I was in the height of Bartonella, I did the test, and my Alzheimer's antibodies were off the chart. Off the chart, like, either have it right now, or I'm going to get it bad, and it's going to be quick, because I'm it, it'd be early onset Alzheimer's. Um, after I treated the peptides and tropics, everything, they're completely gone. So it's best to show where the immunity is reacted to, to show where Lyme is. And so Lyme gets, Lyme spirochetes get into the tissue. Bartonella doesn't. It's too big. It's in the red blood cells. So it affects vessel lining integrity and it creates ischemias and phlebitis and thrombosis and circulatory issues um, and blue fingernails, <laughs> purple fingernails. Um and then in doing so, it creates a lot of changes in the body. So Dr. Son, let's come back to the question that Matt was asking you, which is the number of SOTs that you're being used and using targeted treatment. And one of the things that's always fun in this podcast is uh, is when is when one of our guests gives us a good slap, right? And Matt always points out the times where Dr. Leslie slapped me or somebody else. So let me let me share with Matt one time when when we were having a conversation with Dr. Marty Ross, again, one of our favorite people, yes, uh, and, and Matt was debating with him about whether or not, for example, a Lyme vaccine is possible. And he was debating with him about, you know, targeted treatment. And one of the things that Dr. Ross did when he slapped Matt is he said, hey, Matt, if we if we're able to clear the line, in many cases, your body can manage the rest of the microbes, right? The the co-infections can get managed if we clear the line. Um, so one of the one of the things you have to be careful about is coming to the conclusion because this is a polymicrobial infection, they have to treat all the microbes or prevent all the microbes when in fact you can in some cases have success with treating. He he shared with us in some cases, he just treats the mold and 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 the infection's clear. In some cases, after he treats the mold, he then treats the Lyme, just the just the Borrelia, and that clears the system, right? So, you know, you're taking this targeted approach. And it sounds to me like, uh, very much like Dr. Russell, that you were more polite to Matt. I would like you to have slapped him uh, here. But you're saying, hey, Matt, I only need to use one SOT because when I'm using that one SOT, that then clears enough and allows the body to heal itself. Because I'm someone who understands I just have to take away some of the things that are interfering with the body healing itself. And then once, once, once we're successful in doing that together, you and your patients, then, then the yeah. immune system can be successful. So is that your philosophy? You very much like Dr. Ross, just more polite when answering Matt's question. He, he is an amazing guy. Um, he is. He's got incredible information. Uh, I have never met him, but I, you uh, mean Dr. Ross, not Matt, right? I, I, I respect everybody. <laughs> That's funny. Um, Okay, so this whole topic changes when the fact is this. I use an antisense therapy to have a 95% effective rate for Lyme. And he's using herbs, which I'm not negating at all, but they're very flary. I don't, I'm a naturopath. I don't use herbs, bro. I, I mean, my wife took a drop of cat's call and she had to go to sleep for four hours. I'm, you know, I'm trying, I'm not trying to flurry. I don't want herxy reactions. Um, but 
he's got a great program, a great protocol. My, a lot of my patients are on his protocol, but I don't want palliative care and I don't want suppressed care. You're changing acts, spirochetes into suppressors and uh, different phases um, and, and, and biofilm, you know, um, it, and, and I get to use some repurposed medications to make sure we don't get into that spot. So I, I, I highly respect him at the same time. I think that the the tools in my pocket are for SOT protocol for co-infections, retesting at three to four months mark. Um, I don't, I'm not petitioning for patients to come to my office, but I'll say that I like to work by my patients giving me updates every two or three weeks, even every month. And I get a task and I spend more of my time doing that because I can make micro changes before the next appointment. And so, but but I'm I'm not clear on the on the SOT protocol, right? Is is it one SOT for one microbe, or is or, okay. or do you have an SOT for the full spectrum of microbes that a particular patient is is? Uh, okay, offering? so so antisense therapy. Um, if you YouTube antisense therapy, you'll get some wonderful video demonstrations about how antisense works by targeting the translocation genes and blocking it so it doesn't have another copy. Also by creating apoptosis, which is induced cell death. Um, wonderful animated videos. And that's not specific to Lyme. It's specific to this is how the technology can work. When I treat a patient, I'm treating mold and Lyme. If you have Bartonella, I'm probably going to go ahead at this point if your BART symptoms are higher than your Lyme symptoms, I'm going to say do SOT for Lyme, then let's hit the BART and then go heal. So, so that would be that would be two SOTs, two and different frequencies. So, so uh, eight, I'm going to get in trouble for this comment because um, I've done I think I've done more SOTs around the world at this point, like because I kind of started it here in America, but it. Um, when you target Lyme Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the bad guy, but you have Borrelia guarini, Borrelia afzeli, you have Mimatoi or or any of the other tick-borne Borrelias, which is a vibrant test, 22 of them, based on intensity, which like I had to bait, I had a lady today, she was more intense on afzeli than she was on Lyme. Um, but I'm still going to start with Lyme because the RNA sequences are so close through that whole group of 22 Borrelias we're probably going to cover them. RGCC will not guarantee it because they are the ultimate scientists. It has to be testable, reproductible. Uh, it has to be 100%. 99.8 does not work for them. So this is coming from a practitioner, not from them. But I see most of the time that we can cover those. So that's why I go from the Borrelia sequences to the Bartonella sequences because it's a totally different bug. Can I just make sure I understand that correctly? So in general, it's a specific SOT therapy for something, maybe Borrelia miyamotai, right? A particular type of Borrelia. But yeah. you're saying that because they're so similar, you know, to, at a high, speaking at a high level, when you get an SOT therapy, it's going to cover most likely many of the different types of Lyme, not just a specific one like miyamotai, right? That's, uh, that's been your experience, at least you're, you're claiming, correct? Try not to get in trouble. Um, so in my experience on testing, I typically see, I typically see Bergdorferi go down 
and I'll go through the whole list. Karini went down. Um, um, me and Matoy went down. Um, it, it, they just one after another. They they all kind of seem to go down. We're looking for twenty percent drops in those antibodies, and it's not suppressive. It's not a suppressive antibody reaction. It actually brings it out, um, and we get a better better result for the antibody. And that's why I'll go Borrelius. And then, and then my, most of my patients, like they're so Bartonella, just so random pain, spinal pain, man, I would have pressure in my head and down my spine, just almost intolerable. Um, I had spinal pain, like mid thoracic, I'd wake up and it would not be there and I would move. And then within minutes, I would call it a spinal pain migraine. It was happening for months. I did my SOT for it. It was gone the next day and it hasn't come back. And that was but, a BART SOT? Yeah, I did a BART SOT. Actually, it did come back at the next full moon and then the next full moon and then less at the next full moon. So why yeah, the, why cool. the full moons? We hear this a lot with parasites in, in that in that community. What's up with the full moons? The Bartonella is a bacteria, right? But it's parasitic. So parasites live off the iron in the blood, uh, in the red blood cells. So it's it's like Lyme, you know, it's virulent, but a but a bacteria and, and Bartonella is a is a bacteria, but it's it's pathogenic. So they're working the same way, you know. So they're all they're all related in that big old field of umbrella of spec, you know, spectrum diseases. So I want to compliment you on, you know, I think you're being very difficult and you're hard on yourself because, you know, we had Dr. Lambert on, on this past Friday. He was our last podcast guest. He's the lead Lyme doctor out of Ireland. And he said, look, what we need more of is doctors who will do work and make conclusions and, and analyze their results with past patients and use that to make informed decisions with future patients. Right. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're saying, Hey, I'm doing a Borrelia species SOT and I'm seeing all Borrelia drop down in testing. So I'm not going to do a, another Borrelia SOT because it's it's hitting the spectrum of Borrelia. And then I'm going to bring it over to a Bartonella because now I want to I want to hit the spectrum of Bartonella. And that's how you're sort of allowing with two pretty distinct SOT therapies, one for a Borrelia type, one for a Bartonella type. That's why you're having so much success, it seems like, because you're using the results of past experiences to more refine your approach with patients that you're treating now, correct? At the same time, I'm keeping Candida under control the whole time. And I'm, you know, out of mold, watching for uh, virulent processes pop back up when the when your immune system comes like back online and you're trying to... So the immune systems... Did you find my um, graph? The immune system sequences... The immune, oh, that's right. It's not audio. It's not video. The immune system sequences are God given and we can't get away from them. Once you remove the things that create our immune system depression, immunosuppression, then when it wakes up, it's going to go through a normal sequence of taking care of EBV, taking care of HHV6, taking care of uh, mycoplasma. Mycoplasma is a bacteria, but it holds an antibody for life because it's virulent. So it's uh, uh, mycoplasma, chlamydia mycoplasma. So it's a mycoplasma. Um, so they, they they hold for life. And we're making sure they don't flare once the immune system comes to life. So a lot of patients will say, oh, my gosh, at six, eight weeks, 12 weeks, I regressed. And I say, no, you didn't. 
You're still going through a normal immune system sequence to get to the ending goal where I cannot stop your immune system from doing its job and trying to handle these innate viruses and bacteria that it's supposed to have a grip on. So that's like a, you know, a little mental. Yeah. No, that, that you, 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 you visually depicted that well with your words. I mean, I literally saw it in my, and you know, I saw that. So I want to ask you, and, and it, we, I've asked the question before and I, and I've, I wanted to see how you can portray this for us because I'm still a little fuzzy on this topic. So many Lyme patients tell us it's their immune system has been impacted by Lyme disease, but we hear that in some patients, they're extremely immune compromised, almost, you know, as bad, if not worse as HIV and H patients, right? Where they have no immune response. They're just totally immune, immune, you know, uh, compromised. Who mm. others tell us that they have an overactive immune system. They ha- and they develop autoimmune disease where their immune system is just over going and going and going and attacking healthy cells, causing inflammation, right? So A, do you believe that Lyme does both? It just weakens your immune system to be non-active. And also it, in some cases, makes it become this autoimmune-like condition where it's attacking healthy cells. Is that is that accurate? No. It's not. Okay. It's not. Auto, autoimmunity does not exist. There's no such thing. So there's no such thing where the immune system will go and attack healthy cells that it should not be attacking. It's it's going for the bug. And it's accidentally t- hitting uh, no. innocent bystander, no? So if you have a spirochete in, in the myelin sheath of your brain, it's trying to defend you. But in that defense of getting to the bug, it's an immune reaction, not an autoimmune. The, our immune system was created by God. It doesn't fail. It does not make mistakes or we'd be dead, completely gone. So mm-hmm. our immune system doesn't go crazy and just randomly attack tissue. It is trying to defend you from a pathogen. So when it gets into the myelin, it creates an antibody, which in turn tells other immune cells, they're called CD28, T cells and B cells. It makes a memory of that. And it programs other cells, other soldiers to go do the same thing, to look for the same thing. And in doing so, maybe you have sclerotic lesions, which mimic MS, but you're not dead. Okay. You're not dead. Like if your immune system can't defend you, then you develop ALS and protein-based diseases that create creates death very, 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 very quickly. Hmm. So are you saying that? This is this is this is fascinating. So are you saying that with the, these so many people come to this podcast and say, I got Lyme disease, I got co-infections and boom, I got lupus. Boom, I got, you know, all these all these wild autoimmune diseases. I can't even pronounce the name of some of them. Right. So are you saying that's really just the 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 immune system doing what it was designed to do by God to attack bad things? But these bad things like Lyme are burrowed into tissues and it's actually going into that tissue and going after the spirochete and therefore causing, you know, maybe cellular death in that tissue because it's, it's got to get through it to get to the Lyme bacteria. Correct. Or you would be dead in a week. If if your body did not defend you from that immune, from that pathogen, you'd, you'd be dead. Um, secondly, lupus is nothing more than the white blood cell attacking a red blood cell to get to Babesia bartonella. I can prove it on almost every lupus patient. So what about the co- the converse, right? So what about the immune compromised piece? Does Lyme disease and co-infections weaken your immune system to the state of potential an HIV or AIDS patient? Is that true? You know, there's so many parts of the immune system. The immunoglobulins, G, A, M, and E, are tested on every vibrant test. That's so really, really nice that they add that to the test. So I can see if you're immunocompromised. Um, CD57, NK functions, um, LabCorp actually does that properly, not Quest. 
Um, so we can look at the overall immunity, but immune systems so smart and intelligent that we can't look at every aspect of it. The complements, um, uh, activated, deactivated T cells, in, in, interleukins, it goes on and on and on. There's there's a lot of facets to it. It's one of those things where science thinks that it can dictate where that is, but it cannot. It's so more intelligent than we know at this point in time. So what do you, do you believe, I'm going to kind of circle back to the same question. Do you, do you believe that Lyme will suppress the immune system or do you think it's too, I think your answer was it's too complex to really answer that question, right? It was what you said. It's immunosuppressive. Yes. It is. Okay. It's immunosuppressive, but that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that the immunoglobulins are suppressed. Oh, so it's immunosuppressive in certain areas of your immune system, but not all, I think is what you're saying. Right. Correct. Understood. Okay. So what's, but what's interesting is again, Professor Baumgart told us that she actually witnessed, you know, in, in, in a research environment that Lyme disease obliterates lymph nodes, right? Which is our, our part of the immune system. So do you think that Lyme can actually destroy parts of the immune system? And again, I'm not, I'm not, a, I, I don't have the knowledge you have with the various parts of the immune system, but do you think that's an accurate assessment to say Lyme I, not only is immune suppressive, but can destroy immune cells resulting in, in, you know, these downstream effects? I'd have to see that research. I don't, I don't have an intelligent comment on it. Although the fact that when you do a normal CBC, when you see lymphocytes and neutrophil, neutrophils and then lymphocytes, they should be around 60% for neutrophils, around 30% for lymphocytes. So in line, it moves it in a viral shift where you get 41 to 42, you get a one-to-one instead of 63, which is a, a you know 60 to 30 relationship. Um, and then the absolutes will do the same thing. They'll go two to two or one to one, three to three, even where it should be three to two or three to one or four to two to four to one. Um, that's one of the first things I can do to lead me into further testing for Lyme and those illnesses. And this is going back to your point with Rich, where, yeah, Lyme testing may not be perfect, but there are so many other ways to look for Lyme, right? I mean, you're describing like a all these backdoors, I'm going to call them, right, for simplification purposes, to to backdoor into a Lyme diagnosis through these other means, right? Right, pieces to the puzzle. <laughs> so I do want to I do want to ask your thoughts on, I mean, especially with your background in cancer, what are your thoughts on Lyme disease potentially inducing cancer in some patients, right? I mean, we had Ava Shapi on at the end of the, uh, you know, right before the summer, and she told us she she believed that Lyme had a a trigger in certain breast cancer patients, and she actually spent the summer researching that, and she's about she's about to publish a, a paper on her thoughts and findings on Lyme and breast cancer. Dr. Sure. Alan McDonald came on the podcast and talked about Lyme disease and CLL, which is a type of blood cancer, and he thinks that Lyme actually not only does it go into to healthy blood cells, but it goes into you know it can actually turn healthy blood cells into cancerous blood cells. This was his hypothesis. Now a lot of this requires further research, but what are your thoughts on this with your your cancer background? So viruses can change DNA replication sequences. Um, when currently to this day, when when we're doing bone marrow biopsies, we we will find viruses there. They're actually staining it finely in the last two years for EBV. And you will find EBV in bone marrow-based cancers, lymphoma, leukemia, myeloma, um, which is CLL and ALL. You also will find Bartonella in a breast cancer. So, well, breast cancers have more blood flow. They have more red blood cells there. Did, did Is it there because it's in your blood flow or there because it caused it? I, I don't think co-infectious can. Viruses like 
line, they're small enough to make replication sequence changes. But if it's, if it's an ER positive breast cancer, then I, which is 90%, then I know that it's an ER positive breast cancer because negative toxic environment, environmental xenotoxic estrogens cause cell cycle changes. So they don't express properly. Our own hormones express properly to our cells. Xenotoxic hormones express improperly. So we get different translocation genes. That's why we do SOT for cancers. So on this topic, I just I want to kind of circle back to SOT and ask a question on it. So you said earlier, SOT, not only it, 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 it targets a protein on the bacteria or the virus, you know, the pathogen, let's say. So it targets a protein on the pathogen that prevents it from replicating. And all pathogens live by cell replication, right? I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong with any of this. So by, by preventing the replication of the pathogenic cell, you're effectively stopping the spread or the, the reproduction of that, that pathogen, correct? Right, correct, right, right. Okay, let me let me just clarify one thing. Inside of a spirochete is a is a cell, and inside that cell, it is making a tiny oligonucleotide. So it's not a protein. It's the information within the cell that tells the cell how to make another pro another copy, oh. which is a protein. Gotcha. So, yeah. It, it 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 that that de- that nucleus sends out a little short code to tell the ribosomes to make it of the protein, which is another copy. So, yeah. Um, so it blocks that. And, and SOT is 500 million to 1 billion copies of the blocking copy. <laughs> it's crazy. Nuts. And then, and then it also, you said, you said it also induces cellular death, right? Did I, I think that's the second part of SOT. Not only does it stop the replication, but it also, it sort of fast tracks the death of the cells that are in your body. Right. Right. So for cancer or for other bugs, once the cell feels like it is failing, then it releases itself, endosomes, exosomes, and RNAs H to dissolve the, uh, their, their own cell with enzymes. So the it's question- apoptosis, apoptosis, which is cell-induced specific so, cell death. Yeah. Gotcha. So the, 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 the follow-up to that is, you know, again, a lot, of, a lot of researchers, a lot of doctors have told us they've treated patients. You know, there's one case where it was 10 years of antibiotics oral and IV nonstop, and they found spirochetes in the testicles of this male patient. Other patients they've treated aggressively with all kinds of pharmaceuticals, natural, you name it, and they found the brain riddled with spirochetes, right? Yeah. So the question I have for you is, can SOT penetrate that deeply into, you know, into testicles, into yeah. brain cells? Because we know Lyme burrows so deep into the body, especially the longer it's been in somebody. I, lo- I love this question. Can you get past biofilm? Um, SOT molecules are the tiniest of molecules. They diffuse through the body. They don't follow blood pathways. They don't have to. It's like if you're hollow and you go, they just go right through and they last for four months, highest strength down to six months. Um, so a biofilm to, 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 to short replication, uh, a legonucleotide is nothing. It's not even there. It's remember a biofilm is big. Um, and th- th- this, these molecules are so tiny. They go into the spirochete, then into the cell and then into the nucleus and they block that gene. I mean, we're talking about things so tiny. It's unimaginable. I, you know, I try to explain it like light through a window. So what's interesting is with the, a lot of these biofilms, we've learned that these 
these pathogens kind of glob together. They share their, they almost like, they almost like, like share DNA and they become like, like, right. Like, like these, like, what are you? You're like a, you're like a, I don't know. You're morphed into this thing. We don't know what it is because you're combining forces. But what I, but, but oftentimes we hear that they are very dependent on certain things from each of the pathogens. So if you are able to target the Lyme disease and the Lyme is gone from that biofilm, the rest of that community, whatever the pathogens are, can't survive because they're codependent. Is that, do you believe that? Or, you know, this, these, there's so many things and beliefs out yeah, there about biofilm. I, mean, I, I believe that, but I'm like a kill, kill, kill guy. You know, I want it done. Um, and this is how you do it. Um, but persister forms, dormant forms, if it's living in the human body, it's got to have, it's got to use our substances to still live, you know, even in a dormant persistent form. So it's going to get through everything. The reason that spirochetes like to get into tissues like the testicles, because they have very low blood flow. It wants to hide in the fat in your brain. The more antibiotics that you do, the harder you're going to be for me as a patient, because it is going to drive it deeper and deeper and deeper away from blood flow into the lower brain stem, and I'm going to have a patient that has sclerotic lesions. I'm going to have a patient that has symptoms of Parkinson's and that candida is full brain fog. I'm just fogged. I can't, I can't think of de I'm depersonalized where as Lyme is specific neurological type symptoms. And of course, sympathetic and parasympathetic symptoms. What well, was sympathetic, sympathetic and, um, you know, lower brain stem functions like fight or flight, your pulses, pressures, uh, tingles, um, spinal pain. Oh Lord. Um, so that's how we can judge the difference of where it's going on. And then I do that vibrant test to see actually where it's attacking. So I, I kind of have like all the information right, right away. So what I, I, I want to circle back. I know we're getting really tight on time here. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of final questions, but you talked about ketamine, you talked about peptides, you've talked about NAD and nootropics. So are all of those in the rebuilding phase that you were talking about earlier? They are. Some of them can be started up front. Like if I have a patient who's kind of non-functional and they need to be at work, then I will start them with uh, nootropics and some peptides, which I love that conversation. Although the government just, the FDA just sent out a list of about 20 of our favorite peptides. And they're saying that they can't stop you from compounding them. But if you do, they may come after you. It's just literally a threat. So before I, I want to just come back to peptides in a second. Nootropics, you know, we hear that often as like a marketing buzzword. What are actually nootropics? Because some people are like, oh, like, what does that even mean, right? Like, give us, what, what are nootropics and what's an example of a nootropic? The nootropics are its own category of a chemical. They're not natural. They are chemical but they do great things to the, to the, to the brain in terms of TBIs, uh, recovery, um, uh, in, in, increase in IQ, spontaneity of speech. Like us being to have a 20 minute, 20 minute conversation where I don't get stuck in my words. And, and like all of a sudden the time goes by and I'm, I feel like I've said the right things, <laughs> but if you catch me on a concussion day, I'm out. Um, so they, they do improvement in that spontaneous speech and, and the word we call um, there's there's a lot of nootropics. They're in this own class. Some people call nootropics things that really aren't nootropics, but nootropics have its own categorization. Peptides have their own categorization. Nootropics are 
chemicals that do certain things to the body that cause smart drugs, like the movie Limitless. Yeah. This one after nootropics. Um, peptides are amino acid sequences that make the body do its own things better. Sermorlin, Ipamorlin, GHRP6, GHRP2, G4, they are growth hormone releasing peptides. So they redensify the pituitary. They make your body heal like in your 20s and you get exponential exponential healing. BPC is another one of those. That's on the list too. Um, body protection compound. Simax, um, uh, Dihexa, they're my favorites. They make me so cerebral. I almost feel like I have a supercomputer in my head. And they're on the new list too. <laughs> That's just a shame to hear. I mean, so I do, my final question, because I know we're, we're tight on time and Rich has a ton he wants to conclude with you on. Ketamine. Ketamine is is like, isn't that a, it's a horse tranquilizer, correct? It's, a, my, it's, used, it's using anesthesia for humans. It's always oh, anesthesia. Okay. So how is that helpful for, for Lyme treatment? I mean, we've heard people say that ketamine has the ability to almost like reset neural pathways that have been modified because of Lyme disease. And, you know, the Lyme changes neural pathways. It causes, you know, it, the anxiety, the depression, the, the, the fight or flight, and where ketamine almost resets it to a pure state. Yeah. Is, that, is that true? And if so, like how, right? It's, it's a sedative. How is it doing that? Um, so they're, they're not given a strength that's the sedative. I have an anesthesiologist from Emory University uh, graduate that, that does this at our office. Um, it's just enough to put you in some state metaphorically, I mean, physics, scientifically, um, and it, it breaks neural pathways that have been learned. It breaks that, that PTSD. So it, even my medical director said, cause she's been through a lot in the past few years, even, even some deaths, it took all that and bundled it up and it put it 10 years ago. I have some of my toughest kids that I got all the way to a point where PTSD uh, just reset neurological loops. And the reason we're doing it at my office is for my patients because I treat, I mean, my patients are all over the country. So I treat patients that I've asked to go do it at other places and they come back to me with like just massive benefits. So it's one of those things we can't overlook. It's not harmful. Um, There's certain pre-qualifications you need to go through but man it, i haven't done it yet but I, I i'm 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 ready to dr son have you done just sort of sort of take the next step before i get to our final questions and that is uh have you done any research on psychedelics and the impact that psychedelics may have in the same vein as yeah. uh, you're discussing with uh with ketamine well you know i personally would take microdose um I, I, I like it. I don't like high dose. I, I need to feel like I'm on my feet, but there's some drugs that have come out now for PTSD and anxiety that are, that are micro dosed. Like, um, I'm a, I'm a fan for sure. Now, sometimes it may not be good for some OCD tendencies or some, some, uh, paranoia tendencies. But, but but the the the, the I, I think the the impact is the same right that there there are some neural pathways that develop as a result of the illness process that can be can be altered so that you even though you're no longer physiologically sick right your body is still responding as if you were sick because of those 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 perverted neural pathways and 
uh, psychedelics seem to be seem yeah. to be the tool totally, that totally. many people are using very successfully at yeah. that you know that rehab rehabilitation phase yeah. or the rebuilding that phase. Enzeolytic, you know, tendency to keep that anxious state, that sympathetic dominant. It'll it'll pull up you know, pull up some parasympathetic dominant traits. Dr. Sol, this has really been a really enjoyable uh, conversation, and and um, I want to ask you two final questions. Um, the first is, we here at Take Boot Camp have talked about the pattern of healing we've observed with uh, with our, our uh, community of people who've been successful, right? And they seem to take a particular path with their practitioners where they start with a prehabilitation uh, process uh, of both diagnostic and treatment. And after the prehabilitation, they go through this process of killing the bugs right and then after going through that process they they go through a rehab phase and then ultimately they have to maintain uh, all of the gains that they've made uh, and we actually call that parm um, and i think you're going to particularly love why we call it parm so uh, p is prehabilitation a is assist we don't believe in kill we believe in assisting the immune system uh, r which is rehabilitation and then m is the is the maintenance um what is your response to our PARM um, framework? Uh, and is that in line with um, the way you treat your patients? No, it's not. Tell us tell us what you do differently. Okay, because by the grace of God, um, I stumbled into a treatment that has a 95% effective rate to get rid of Lyme and... Oh, just for example, it's the same way that we don't have hepatitis C in America anymore. Do you ever hear about it? No. no. You know why? It costs insurance companies too much money, so they made an SOT for it. So if you want to see how, it, you know, you can do a search for um, anti-sense for hepatitis C. You can see that, how they just rearrange the base pairs. And um, so that, that 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 part where you're talking about palliative care and you're keeping somebody just, you know, over there so they don't feel so badly is the part where we, fortunately, we can change that now and we can dismiss a patient. But isn't it, isn't it really a, isn't that really a, an assist phase? So for example, one of, one of the things that, you know, I was wondering when you and Matt were having your conversation was, um, is SOT going to work if you have somebody who's living in a moldy environment, meaning their yeah. their immune system is suppressed, and before you help them to clear the clear the um, mold, is the SOT going to be effective, or do you have to clear the mold first and then get get them to a phase where they can assist their immune system by killing the bugs? SOT is ninety five percent effective from a lab that has to withstand the scrutiny of their data. Okay, so yeah, you kill, you can, you can, you can, you can arrest Lyme, um, but then if you're living in mold, you're not going to feel like your SOT works very well. One of my, and, and then if you're not controlling candida, it's not, it's going to be the same. If you're not, and then if you like, you know, especially post COVID, you're flaring UBV, you're not, you know, it's not going to feel like it works. So this is my cry and my call to all of these people now. All these clinics that are doing SOTs, if you don't follow this pattern and protocol, you're going to make it have a bad name. And you see a lot of people out there on these groups um, where 
It didn't help me. Well, it, it, it did. I can watch antibodies and symptoms of Lyme change where patients still feel sick because in the normal sequence of the immune system, we're still dealing with other things. And I am not a one and done. STT is not one and done, but you have to find a practitioner who is Lyme literate, testing literate, order of pathogenicity literate, and then you can you can get you can get somewhere. I, I I'm not gonna chase rabbits, like I said. So right. so we maybe we could change parm into just a little bit different uh so I, want, I want I want your acronym. I want to know this because it, it seems wanna... to me that that uh maybe you maybe you are agreeing, maybe you're not agreeing with me because because you 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 use this term of order order of pathogenicity. Yep. And and the order seems to be that you have to get the body ready in order to be able to kill, right? So you, you were outlining all of the different elements and you, you were using the term, well, you using the term, you may not feel like the SOT is working because, you know, you're not managing the candida or you're not managing the mold or you're not managing, but isn't, don't you have to manage all of those things before the SOT is going to be, be effective? Therefore, you're going through a prehabilitative phase? No, I'm not managing. Or you're, 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 you're overcoming them. We're fixing them. Okay, but you're you're fixing those first, right? Isn't there an order? No, it's all together at the same time. If you do candida for six months, but you still have Lyme, you still have Lyme. If you do mold remediation, but you have Lyme and Bartonella, you still have those. You know, it, it, this is this this has to be done at the same time, and it's it's more inexpensive than ever before. But like I said, that 17-year-old living in a 6,000 MPA count, wow, she's still in the bed and I've removed all her bugs. Right. So so even, even but look, even if she didn't have Lyme, she's going to get sick from something because she has such a high high mold count that, that her immune system is being suppressed. I mean, you're going to get sick. She, she can die from a simple sinus infection. Yeah. You, you can't control it with that, with that kind of mold. Um, so your approach is you're doing it all at once. There's no, there's no, there's no stream of steps. It's all I'm managing everything at once, um, and and ultimately we're we're we're. Okay. So let me give you a timeline. Okay, you come to see me. Um, from day one, I'm testing for urine toxic mycotoxins. Urine from Great Plains. Um, I am checking for 22 Borrelias and the most intensity to down below. I'm looking for co-infections. Correct. Now this is, this is really a point that I get excited. No, I'm not excited. I'm actually really frustrated about um, if you don't test properly, you don't have your order of importance. If you don't test tick-borne illness properly, you don't have, and, and I'm using the two, top two labs you can, you can get to. And, and then, Oh boy, I'm going to get some feedback from some other places. Um, and then you're using, you know, making sure innate viruses don't surface up to the top. And I go so far as to this. I use a lab, medical, medical diagnostic labs, that checks EBV on six antibody levels. Not three, like LabCorp. Um, and then we treat Candida the whole time. Like I said, the, this, this top five, Maybe it's six, you know, then you come into histamine reactions 
and mast cell reactions. And then you get into some heavy metals if you're getting some dementia and stuff like that. Um, so you're going from five to almost two hands at this point. Let me, let me hold my toes up too, you know, <laughs> 15 to, 10 to 20. But that, that's my foundation, bro. And I work up from that foundation. And when you come, sorry, when when somebody like me treats you, I'm not I'm not redoing it every time you see me. I'm building on foundations. This is the order of importance. Once I find or don't find lime, we talk about mold. We get you out of the mold, in the mold, detox them all. We do an SOT for Lyme. That's the only cure. Um, and they would treat co-infections at the same time with things that don't hurt you. Um, we're waiting on the SOT to come in. It takes four to six weeks. Um, we get that in you. I'm retesting it three months, six months. And the whole time you're checking in with my office to see where we are. Because we're so busy. I don't need to work from appointment to appointment. You don't have to come pay me money to get into my schedule. I have, I have more staff than anybody in Georgia. <laughs> Because I want to have check-ins every two or three weeks and make micro changes along the way to make sure I'm getting where I need to get with your health. So, you know, send me your parm and, oh, here's something that's kind of kind of interesting. We're, we're getting a new website. I've written so many documents and I think what we talked about today may be my new book because <laughs> it's a really good order of importance. Um, Well, make sure we send you a transcript so you can convert it into your uh, into your book. Can you do that? Yes. Oh man, sweet. So, um, th th that order of importance is 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 very important to get to the next step. I'm usually within three to four months. I have my patients somewhere, but let me let me mention something that's extremely important that we haven't talked about. The numbers on a piece of paper of a lab are less important than how you feel and how your symptoms are changing. Right? Yes. I mean, look, you're very much aligned with, with Dr. Marty Ross on that point as well. You and he are really simpatico because, you know, he argues that the onboard diagnostic system is what's most important. And he wants to make sure that he is getting feedback from his patients on a regular basis so that, uh, so that um, you know, the body is speaking to him about what changes need to be made. Right. Ex ex exactly, man. And it's also the point that um, everybody's so individual and their antibodies change so much that if I don't catch them at the right times, and I'm trying to predict this and I'm working with the labs, uh, like I said, I don't just work with the lab. I'm, I'm in there with them. I'm, I'm not, a, you know, I'm in it to win it. I'm in the ditch. I'm digging as hard as I can um, that we can make sure that, that, we test properly at the right time so we don't get the peaks, we get the valleys, and I can make sure things are shoveling off the page. And you're and then and this patient's looking at me like, Well, I still feel horrible and everything's off the page. What well, did you stop your nice statin for Candida? Yeah, it was a couple of months ago. Oh. So next time don't even call me. Go back on your antifungal before you even call because you feel bad. And the, the the next call is, oh my gosh, it was Candida again. Um, cause it comes back so quickly. It's innate or post COVID is EBV. Y'all, I used to be able to sit in front of a patient and go, it's pollen season, sun size, it's flu season. You have a stomach virus, uh, you have the flu, um, it's spring allergy pollens. And now with all these variants and all this mess that's going on, 
I can't wrap my brain around all the possibilities of everything that's happening anymore. And it drives me crazy because I really like to wrap my brain around the variables, uh, but I can't. It's impossible at this point in time. So I have, have a document where I talk about multiple symptom patient with no diagnosis. And in multiple, so this acronym, multiple symptom patient, no diagnosis. That means they're sick. They've been sick for 20 years. They have no idea what's going on. And I'm going to test them up to Wahoo. And I'm going to maybe be the first person to tell them that they're sick with certain pathogens. Multiple symptom patient with diagnosis but it hasn't been tested properly, right? Which is majority. And I can't stress enough testing properly. And why do you rely on my words for testing properly? Oh, I don't know, man. I, it's just, it, it's super important to me. When you come in front of us, I, I'm, I'm going to make sure that we're doing the proper things. DNA connections is great. Um, there's a few other labs. I think we're getting better and better with testing soon, but uh, then there's a there's a there's a patient with Lyme and they know they have Lyme and they haven't been treated properly. So those are my three groups that I'll look at every day. And I can put them in a group. They can put themselves in the group wherever they are. You know what's one of the hardest things ever is explaining to someone that they have Lyme disease when they've never heard of it before. Yeah. Holy smokes. That's when I'm going to give them your number and you can do that. Yeah. Well, you just have them listen to our podcast, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I, uh, sadly, though, Dr. Sloan, that's becoming, at least in our experience, less and less frequent. There are so many people being diagnosed with Lyme disease per year just in the U.S. that, uh, sadly, more and more people um, have that as a part of their just their general yeah. conversations, right? And, 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 and you're hearing, you know, you're hearing people get diagnosed in the uh, in the supermarket almost on a regular basis because you have so many people who have Lyme disease, or family members who have Lyme disease, and then they're bumping into friends and family who um, who have been sick and haven't been diagnosed. And this, you know, the the you know the patterns are obvious to people who are living with this, and uh, it's just becoming more and more frequent. So sadly, Lyme disease is, is, has become endemic. And uh, in most parts of the country, certainly on the certainly in northern U.S., East Coast and West Coast, and it's moving down south really aggressively. So I, I can tell you this. This is interesting because I, I checked different genotypes. First of all, I was going to say you just actually said one of my things, a multiple symptom patient with no diagnosis. And that, that's that's good. That's in the book. Um, all right. One of our presidents, I think it was Ford. He gathered deer in Northeast and put them on trains and brought them down to South Georgia. So the genotype of that tick from literally just south of Atlanta through Florida is the same as Northeast genotype. Wow. And then it goes Midwest and it's, and it's different and different. Um, but I can tell by testing which genotype the patient has. So we we really love this conversation. The the Lyme geeks love talking with the Lyme nerd. It has really been exciting for us. Uh, but we are we are going to let you get back to your family. You've been kind enough to um, to spend over two hours with us. So uh, can you just share with our listeners where they can get in touch with you if they if they would like to work with you? It's new patient e email is new patient at the Genesis Center dot com. The Genesis Center. Three words, T-H-E-G-N-E-N-E-S-I-S center.com. I'd been referring patients to my website 
not knowing that the emo didn't work until recently. All right. Well, I'm glad you're glad you're getting some of those uh, technological bugs cleared up as well as you're getting the uh, the biological bugs cleared up in people's bodies. So, uh, Dr. Son, we can't thank you enough. Uh, and, and again, thank your wife for sharing you with us for as long as you have. It's been uh, really wonderful getting to know you and we look forward to working with you in the future. I would love to, guys. Anything I can do to progress this education information about testing treatments and stuff like that. I, it's such a passion for me. I'm not sure why God placed it such on my heart, but it is my cancer patients sit in the IV rooms and say, I'm so glad I don't have Lyme disease. 